0: Listener production.
1: If you guys are ready to laugh and start having some fun, I can absolutely guarantee I am as well.
0: Rove McManus started his entertainment career as a stand-up comedian, but he reckons that maybe he wasn't tall enough. Lucky for him, a take-a-chance gig as a late show host would make him a household name. Hello, good evening, and welcome back to the laugh live. And one of the biggest names in Australian TV. Welcome back to
1: Rove Live, very big show.
0: Rove Live ran for 16 seasons before McManus relocated to Los Angeles, where he became a regular guest of Jay Leno's, no less, and launched Rove LA. Welcome to Rove LA, wherever you are watching around the world. He's now back in Australia producing TV here at home. In our conversation, Rove draws back the curtain on the Aussie entertainment industry. He talks about how he got started, the confidence to say no when it mattered and the guts to ask for what you want in life. The weekend list where we recommend what to watch, see, do, eat and listen to is on its way. But first, here is my chat with Rove McManus. I'm starting with A very perfunctory question, but I need to know, what is the origin of Rove? Because I'm guessing that's not the name your parents gave you, but if they did, Ah. props to them.
1: Uh, It's not the name they gave me. Short story, it's a nickname that my older sisters gave me when I was much younger. I'm not sure of the origin of of it because it's that far back. Grew up with my immediate members of my family calling that. We kind of each each of us, my siblings, we all have a nickname and that was mine. And when I started performing, I didn't want anyone, because I was like only two years removed from high school, I didn't want anyone from school coming to see me. So I thought I'll perform under my nickname. So it was a bit of a pseudonym. And sometimes people will come up to me and go, oh, hey, John, um, which is my birth name, um, thinking, oh, that gets you in the inner circle, but it's it's not really <laughs> it just, yeah. it's uh, it's actually a name i never really connected with I was, i'm the third john in my family after my father and grandfather so i never really liked it anyway i found it a bit bland i don't think john live would have been a successful a show
0: <laughs> i don't know might have made might have gone places i like the fact that the name of your that your inner circle used to use for you became the name that your very very outer circle of fans used for you as well because i think one of the realities of fandom of someone who's a household name like you is people who've never met you feel very close to you when you know nothing about them. How did you first adjust to that experience of having strangers come up to you and act like they knew you well?
1: Well, I suppose I had always noticed that myself, being someone who was in the entertainment business, even just starting out doing stand-up, there's always someone who gets starstruck by someone else. In all the years I have been in entertainment and I have worked with some of the biggest names in show business, but I have seen even the biggest names in show business get excited by someone else. Everybody has their someone. So I'd always been aware of how to present yourself and how to approach people and things like that. And I guess if I'm being honest, probably at some point hoped would come my way. The first time it does, it's actually quite validating. One of the first times I do remember it, and this is not when someone comes up to you after a gig or something like that because that's very different. It's a bit more immediate. It's when someone stops you when you're just on the street. I was in Melbourne and someone came up and said, uh, oh, I really uh, love your stuff. And I said to them, what are you talking about in particular? Because at the time I had been doing a little bit of stand-up. I actually had a series of television commercials that I had done for, for solo, the soft drink. And I was doing, uh, my channel 31 community TV program. And they said, no, no, no. The loft like you idiot. What do you mean? What? Oh, oh I'm sorry, Mr. Show business. <laughs> um, And they said, no, no, The the Loft. I watched The Loft, which was the 31 program. And that's the one that meant the most to me.
0: You talked about hope and that you sort of, when you were just starting out, you hoped that would happen to you, that you'd become that person that people recognised on the street and said that they loved your work, not just your commercials. And I read that your production company, Roving Enterprises, began in 1999. Now that's way back Mm -hmm before you were a household name. So you must have had a sense of destiny or possibility or confidence from quite an early point in your career.
1: Uh, It probably was confidence in a way, but it was also somewhat self-preservation and self-respect. I think coming from a stand-up background, people probably forget, most comedians anyway, like 99% of us, write and perform your own material. So you are your own producer. And so when it came to getting the call from the number one network in the country saying, come and work with us. And they said, what do you want to do? I said, well, I just want to do what I'm doing on Channel 31, but I want more people to be able to see it. Of course, the first thing would have been, well, I, I want to get paid not I don't want a fortune I just yeah you know, I, I wasn't getting paid for doing the job on 31 so I just want an income as I just get anything <laughs> I'm happy <laughs> so then it became well what's my bargaining chip so I was talking uh, beforehand with my manager because none of neither of us had sort of been through this situation before and he said well what do you want what do you want And I said, well, I just want the ability to say no. That's all it was. I don't want to make a show that I'm ashamed of. I don't want to make a show that if I'm doing a stand-up gig, the first three minutes I have to undo what people see on TV because I'm on a show that I'm not proud of or it's a bit silly or I've said yes to something, you know, just for the sake of it. So then it became, well, if that's the case, then you have to produce it.
0: Tell me about... Rove Live and how the original idea was pitched and the reason I'm asking is I want to understand how different the show you described at the time was to the show that you ended up making which would run for 11 seasons.
1: I watched The Tonight Show, I watched um, uh, The Late Show with David Letterman. I really loved those shows but I felt there was still a disconnect because it didn't speak to an Australian audience and certainly not to, you know, I was in my 20s at the time. I felt that there was a market for it here. Young people like watching these shows. I like watching these shows to the point where I want to make one of these shows. So that was kind of the pitch. But then I got told, oh, we've tried tonight shows and, quote, they don't work here. And my response to that, and again, I'm only in my 20s, and I'm talking to the general manager of the number one network in the country. And I said, "Well, there's two things with that: one, because you didn't do it the right way, and two, because you didn't have me hosting it." And that's what See, I that take some swag. Gulag. Well, I would watch some of these shows, and I would sit there going, "Yeah, I I like these types of shows, but I don't like this one." because it's not very good. It's not that the genre is no good. It's just that this, the way you've put this together just hasn't been done the right way. The person hosting it doesn't have a comedy background. It's just, it it feels very old school. It's playing to a much, much older audience. And maybe there is an audience that this will work for, but I'm telling you that there is a generation coming through that will want to watch something like this. So then the problem was I was kind of, in at nine and essentially signed to do a pilot, was um, put with one of their internal executive producers, a man by the name of Craig Campbell, who still works with me now. And we were in the car on our way to go have our first meeting with to hire our first staff member. And he said to me, so what do you want to do? And I thought... He doesn't want to hear this. None of them want to hear this. I I know what the right answer is they want to hear, but I can't say it. So I just turned to him and I said, I want to make a Tonight Show, which I know wasn't what anybody wanted. And he turned to me and he said, me too. So let's make one, but in a way where they don't know that that's what they're getting. And so it began that, well, how do we make it not look and feel like a Tonight Show And it became, all right, don't sit behind the desk. We had live sketches in studio. It was let's have a team that that are with me on set the whole time so it's not just me. There's just one guest and then they stay within the the rest of the show and they're threaded into sketches and other live studio ideas. And then it became let's get creative and let's think outside the box and so the show evolved from there.
0: When I was 22, I got my first full-time job I was working for a guy called Kevin Rudd and I remember writing briefing notes for him to go and have a chat with you. Oh. And what I want to know is, how did you prepare to interview a prime minister?
1: I would sit down with, we had, a, we had two guest producers. So depending on who had booked what guest. So they each would send me like just as thorough a document, and I'm talking it's sometimes up to eight to ten pages of complete bio of the person that we had on, then I would go through and I would literally just highlight the things that were either A, important or B, of interest to me, and then we would sit down and we would have a once-a-week uh, guest briefing where we would sit, I would sit down with that producer and then another producer involved in the show. And we would run through the segment. So when he came on as Prime Minister, the first time we ever had the, the, an acting Prime Minister on the show, he just suddenly fell into our laps. We'd already had a full show and there was uh, there was an opportunity for him to sort of just be slotted in. And it happened to be when Sasha Baron Cohen was on performing his character of Bruno, which we... Went back to the PM's office and we said, Look, we would love to have him on, but you just need to know that Sasha Baron Cohen is on in character and we cannot guarantee your safety <laughs> for what may happen fair, here. Fair. And he was still fine and it was all good. And one, this is one of my favorite shows for what happened backstage. Normally it's about what happens on camera, but backstage, just talking to two very nervous performers yeah. one's the prime minister of australia and the other is one of the greatest uh, comedic actors of our generation and so going in to, to talk to Rudd, and he's like so you know what am i in for tonight and i said look you i think you're fine you're going to be fine i don't think he's going to do anything don't panic we're, we're not planning anything so you're going to be okay and he's like all right but there's no surprise I said oh, look not from our end that's all I can tell you you're going to be fine he's like good 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 okay good to know then I go in to say hi to Sasha and he's like so what am I in for it's like if I try something I said look I cannot <laughs> tell you to try anything but if you choose to try something by all means try something But I cannot guarantee your safety because there are people here that have, I don't know, tasers or what, like he is the leader of our country and if you suddenly run onto the set um, to try to do something with him, I don't know what will happen and I cannot be complicit. So this is your call. So I think the whole show then everyone was sort of, there was this wonderful crackle of electricity in in the building as everyone was just constantly waiting for something to happen. But to this day, I'm still very good friends with with Sasha, and to this day, as a comedian uh, performer, was is still very upset with himself that he didn't try to do something to our prime minister. before we officially get underway tonight there's obviously a few things i'd like to say firstly i'd like to say thank you to everybody for their kind thoughts and words when belinda passed away last year uh, as i said at the time uh, the fact that she meant so much to to so many people meant so much to myself and and to both of our families i just want to say how appreciative i was uh, to everybody for giving me the time that i needed to go away and and feel ready and i do feel ready to come back and and do what I love doing more than just about anything else. And that's entertaining you guys, or at least trying to anyway.
0: Rove, you took a brief break from TV in 2006 following the death of your wife. There were rumours around that time that you'd quit the industry for good. And I was going back through some of the very old internet articles at the time. How do you grieve when the public feels like your emotional experience is something that they're expected to share in?
1: Uh, well, you, you, you do exactly that, you, which is what I did. You run away. You, you get into your little turtle shell and you retreat in. I went up to the Daintree Rainforest and stayed at a friend's place up there, which is somewhere where no one can find you. Again, I think people sometimes forget that when you're with someone who has an illness, it isn't like, uh, you know, something where it's maybe they were in a, a tragic accident, I don't know, struck by lightning or have a heart attack. It's, it's you know, it's coming. So it's not so much how do you, you grieve as much as, you know, when it's, when it's happening, you're still sort of having to go out every week and entertain people when that's kind of the last thing you feel like doing so if anything the the aftermath of when Belinda passed away was not as difficult as to be honest the the last show I did before she passed away was probably that that period was was tougher than than what came afterwards. but I do remember being out like in the middle of the bush, just you know getting back to country and just trying to find some time to myself, and someone coming up to me and or just we went past and Said, "Oh, are you Rove McManus?" And my response was, "Not today." And that was kind of how it felt after you know, like we we're talking before that those times where people come up and say hi, and you're like, "Yep, yeah, cool, fine," and that comes with it. This is one of those times, like, "No, no, 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 not today. I don't, I don't. You don't get to share me today." In
0: 2011, you relocate to LA, where you hosted Rove LA off the back of a regular segment on Jay Leno's Late Night show. That has got to be pretty much the dream of every Australian I know in the entertainment industry to make it in the most influential TV market in the world. Were you more scared or more excited?
1: Oh, definitely excited. My uh, time in LA, because that was about, in total, close to maybe six years, we were there six, seven years, was... Like some of the greatest memories I have in this business is being in the states, working on uh the Tonight Show, working on rove l a was the most fun I've had in television. but the first time I got to be on the Tonight Show, I was asked to be a guest, so I was still hosting the show in australia and and Jay loves the idea of talking to the Australian version of him was how it was put. So if you can ever, if you ever find yourself in Los Angeles, we'd love to have you on the show. Well, quite clearly, I got on the very next plane to Los Angeles and was booked on the show uh, with Dr. Phil, which I thought was really cool at the time. Yes. You know, a, a nice you want to be on with a nice big promotable name as well. And I was just about to go on and I'm waiting backstage and ready to walk out. I'm just looking at the back of the set. And the back of the set this is graffiti and it's, you know, it's just Chipboard or whatever. And I was just looking at it and going, Oh, this is like our set. And felt this kind of metaphorical slap across the back of the head. That was like, Yeah, this isn't the same, though. This is the Tonight Show. And if you watch it back, I walk out and I look out to the crowd to sort of give them a wave. And you see me very quickly, like, look back down again as it kind of became a bit overwhelming for me. Or you can think it's like, doing stand-up all over again. You're just waiting for that first laugh. And then you get it and then you get the next one and then you go, okay, they like me now, I'm, I'm, I'm good, I'm good. And it was incredible. I got asked back a couple of times and then obviously when I told them I was planning on relocating to the, to the States, they said, come in, let's have a chat. Next thing I know I'm on the show every week with a regular segment and in the meantime I'm doing my LA-based talk show which in our second year moved on to the lot at Warner Brothers and for a brief period of time I had a day job as an animator for a television program called Little Elvis Jones and the Truck Stoppers because I love animation and on my desk I had a statuette of these three characters from a show called Animaniacs that was set on the Warner Brothers lot so it's them on top of the somewhat famous Warner Brothers water tower. So this big yellow sort of tower thing with the Warner Brothers logo with these three characters on it. So I would have that on my desk when I was working on this animation show. Cut to what are we now like 20 years later there I am unpacking my this same statuette and putting it on my desk in my office to look straight out the window and there is the actual Warner Brothers water tower outside my office window. And that was not lost on me. I thought that was that was really cool.
0: Rove, you've done just about everything worth doing on Aussie TV and quite a bit overseas as well. Is there anything left on the bucket list?
1: Yeah, Yeah, there's always still things on the bucket list. I still have an itch to scratch in the world of, like, nature
0: documentaries.
1: I feel Ooh, we've got a David a much-
0: Attenborough on our hands. Yeah,
1: yeah. I feel like I feel like I'd love to get out into the wild because I do. I do love getting out into nature, and I, um, I'm passionate about conservation and and wildlife. And I would love to do Attenborough with, but with you know, a bit of a comedy bent somehow. But also, being a dad now, I like the idea of maybe doing something based around kids. Whether it's yeah, I like I like working with kids. I love being a dad. I love mucking around i'm a juvenile anyway so i think it kind of works at that level and i've written kids books and so i seem to know how to get a good fart joke out there that works well
0: (laughs) rove thank you so much for your time today and being so generous in your answers and about your time in the industry and really kind of pulling back the curtain on tv for us
1: my pleasure thank you for having me
0: That is all we've got time for from Rove McManus. I thoroughly enjoyed that chat, although I'm kicking myself that I didn't ask him to say hi to his mum for me. Up next, The Weekend List with Tate McGregor. Welcome to The Weekend List where we recommend what to read, watch, listen, cook, see, do podcast, whatever it might be. And today we are sending some activities with a lot of love to the people in Melbourne who are back at home once more. Tate, have you got something for us to listen to?
2: Absolutely. Um, There's a new song that was put out yesterday by Pinal, who are, you know, they've been in the Australian EDM world for decades, they've teamed up with a new guy on the scene, Bujera, who I've spoken about in the past. He's a young Budgelung guy who's been teaming up with Matt Corby as his mentor recently. Their track Stranger Lovers Out. So if you kind of want a guy with like a really soft, cruisy voice, you might know already know his song Higher, that's on high rotation at the moment. Mixed with a bit of dance beat. This song is for you. It really pops off. So for all our Melbourne listeners, if you're having a lounge room dance party this weekend, add "Stranger Love" by Pernau and Budjara to your playlist. I can think- But Jam, what can we watch while we're uh, sitting at home? Well, I have
0: recently devoured Girls Five Ever, which is on Stan. It is a really interesting premise because it almost sounds like a comedy skit or something. It's about four women in their forties who were a popular nineties girl band, and they've reunited in their forties to try and relaunch their career. Of course, none of them have had lives that have kind of gone the way they would have hoped. It's got amazing Spice Girls, Destiny's Child, but without a successful Beyonce character oh vibes God. to it. Um, the, or maybe like more of a Steps or a oh, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> S Club yeah. 7, something like that. Um, but these chicks are so good. They're so funny. The one-liners are really, really killer. It is not super smart elevated comedy. It is silly lie down on the couch because it's locked down again and just have a bit of a giggle.
2: Yeah, tune out. That's what we love to hear. Well, while you're lying on the couch, then why don't you multitask and log on to Reconciliation Australia? I feel like our listeners might not know, but it's National Reconciliation Week this week up until June 3rd. Happens every year, same dates. And it's all about bringing voices to our First Nations people. As a worth or wrong, uh woman myself, I think it's really important that we platform and showcase that this week is going on. And if you're at home and don't know what reconciliation means to you, Now is the time to go educate yourself. Reconciliation Australia has many resources that you can easily access on their website, including 20 steps of action. So if you're sitting there and you don't know what to do in order to build reconciliation in your life, then go on there. They have 20 easy steps. Let me just read you out some right now. You know, call out racism, learn your local history, Create culturally safe spaces, you know, make sure reconciliation is everyone's business, which is what we're doing here today. Log onto Reconciliation Australia and upskill yourself, essentially, Jamila. Tate, that is an
0: awesome and very worthy recommendation, which I am gonna follow up with a recommendation that everyone watches Lego Masters. <laughs> <laughs> Bear with me, bear with me. It's going to be a rough week, particularly for those in Victoria, stuck at home with kids. But for everyone, this is not a show for children. Guys, this is a show for all of us. Uh, Lego Masters is an Aussie reality TV show. It's actually based off a British concept of the same name where teams of mega geeks compete to build the best Lego project. And they are given challenges and themes. It's hosted by Hamish Blake, who, you know, everyone loves mm-hmm. and it is judged by a lego designer called ryan the Brickman mcnaught <laughs> you can currently watch it on nine now and catch the latest series it's some really lovely wholesome family fun and you get strangely invested in the lego Who doesn't love lego we would love to be able to share your ideas on the next installment of the weekend list so please hit us up on our social media at the briefing podcast tell us what you're listening to what you're reading what you're watching what you're doing tell us what you have been doing to take some steps for positive change for reconciliation week that's all we've got time for today on the weekend briefing please make sure you hit that sneaky subscribe button wherever you get your podcasts or grab us on the Listener app. Tom and Annika will be back in your feeds on Monday morning, bright and early from 6am. Listener.